Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Hello, Next Economy Now podcast fans. We are coming at you. This is Aaron, partner, worker, owner at Lift Economy, and Sean. Hi, everybody. Sean Barry here, also a partner at Lift Economy. And today we're going to talk about the first five Next Economy principles. Um, these are principles that we introduce our MBA students to, and we go through them extensively in the course, and we thought we would share them out with the larger community so that you all can be thinking about these principles. And we consider them to be kind of a little bit more like guideposts rather than things that are static or unchanging. In fact, when we first developed them, our MBA, our earlier cohorts especially, had a lot of influence in helping us shape these principles. And Sean, do you want to share how we came up with these principles? Sure. And like you said, they're not necessarily complete. We're open to evolving these and and we kind of are still actively uh, crafting them. But also just because the next economy is is emergent, it's not necessarily complete and well-defined. And so, as Aaron has said, the, these are kind of like guidelines, guideposts of what we see emerging in organizations. So uh, as an impact consulting firm, our teams worked with over 250 or so social enterprises, nonprofits, organizations, project teams that are doing something to create an economy that works for all life. And these are some of the elements that we see them actually embodying, representing, advancing. And so we want to offer them as uh, design considerations for, for teams that are also making a difference. And then to think about, you know, you might be really strong in one area, but then there's another area that you may not have considered yet. And so the idea is by considering all 10, you're attempting to be maybe a little bit more complete. Although we'll say that... We don't see any any teams that are are kind of, you know, fully developed and advanced in all ten. You know, we see a lot of teams with strengths in a couple or three, and then maybe you know some opportunities for improvement in some. How about how about you, Aaron? What do you what do you think? Anything else to offer there? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and also even while we haven't seen any one organization completely ace all ten <laughs> principles, if you will. We also recognize that the principles are just one component. So within the larger overarching framing that we give to our MBA students, we recognize that under underneath all these principles, we need to be pursuing a vision for collective liberation and moving away from domination culture towards liberatory culture, uh, dismantling domination forms of racism, whether it be sexism, ableism, ageism. And so just sort of naming that these principles, we don't explicitly say in any of the principles that we're disrupting racialized capitalism, but that is sort of the preamble to all the principles is that that would be a main undertaking for our next economy organization is to design away from the current systems of oppression that we're living under and towards collective liberation. And these principles can help to do that, but ultimately that has to be kind of an overarching endeavor. 
Yeah, no, I, was, I mean, thanks for mentioning that, Aaron. And this is, again, something that we've evolved through our, our conversations with our, our participants of, you know, why isn't there a principle, you know, on dismantling racialized capitalism, et cetera. And yeah, absolutely, we need to do that. And the principles are stated more of like, what's the positive characteristic of the economy that replaces that system of oppression and extraction. So they're stated in the context of we're talking about manifesting collective liberation and by uplifting these principles in an equitable manner. What's principle number one? You want to lead us in? I love this principle. Uh, meets basic needs. So we're inviting Next Economy Entrepreneurs to really think about how does my particular endeavor strive to meet basic needs? And it seems really intuitive, but when we look at the impacts of the business as usual economy, we believe that there is so much evidence that many, if not most, enterprises right now are actually not striving to meet basic needs and certainly not striving to do that in an equitable way. So that's why we created this principle. And this principle is, you know, really about the process of interrogating what is a need and what is a basic need and really focusing on how do we provide such needs in a way that doesn't diminish the ability for others to meet their needs as well. And, you know, we can think about basic needs as um, food, clothing, shelter, transportation, culture can be a basic need, art, connection. So, you know, one example that we see in terms of some of our allies in the ecosystem that are fulfilling this or have have an example of of this. There's a lot of organizations we could name, but I'll just throw out at least one. One of our um, alumni is an organization called, the founder of it is founded an organization called the Multicultural Refugee Coalition in Austin, Texas. And so the Multicultural Refugee Coalition, they are actually a nonprofit that's embodying this principle of meeting basic needs through leveraging social enterprise and livelihood creation. That's the kind of fundamental goal of the nonprofit is to create livelihoods for supporting immigrants in the Austin area to build dignified, fair wage livelihoods. And so they do that through creating basic needs, food and textiles. So refugees are actually getting living wage employment through making clothing and growing food in their 20-acre organic agroecological farm and garden, which incidentally, the refugees are also able to eat from. So both um, providing food to the community and also supporting themselves with growing food. So we love this uh, example. There's a, a lot of other ones that we could name, but this is kind of a departure from what we see in sort of the kind of speculative oftentimes in like speculative entrepreneurial spaces, which are, how can I create the next widget or gadget that can make the most money, but maybe is not checking back in what is most needed to equitably share the distribution of, of basic needs so that everyone can have thriving, healthy lives. Oh, yes. Thanks, Aaron. And I'm with you. I love this one. And and while they're not necessarily in priority order, this this does kind of make sense to be first because 
you know, instead of like, for example, we could have a company that's selling maybe a sugary beverage, right? Like water with sugar in it and maybe carbonation or something like that. Whereas the basic need of food and sustenance and drink is there, but maybe some companies that are selling that type of thing, that's not their purpose is to make sure people are hydrated and healthy. They're looking to, you know, extract a profit and achieve other goals by, you know, providing something that could be considered food. Maybe it's not the healthiest thing. And even in the example you shared, and this is what we see in a lot of these companies, by the purpose of the organization being to provide that basic need, there's often multiple benefits created. Like you're saying, there's, there's livelihood, there's healthy food created, there's certainly community connection and interaction. So a lot of times these benefits stack up when the intention is to, you know, create a mutual benefit for a group. So that's a great principle to, to illustrate that. So building on that, our second principle, Sean, what do we do next? So yeah, so if you have an organization that's aiming to create a basic need for a certain community, that's wonderful. But how they go about doing that can also be very impactful. So our second principle, principle number two, is that the organization also shares ownership. So this is a, to me, I find it particularly poignant in this country, which, you know, you hear a lot of, you know, kind of valorizing the idea that America is a democracy. And, you know, you could argue that there are some democratic elements in this country, but from my experience and my awareness, and I was actually just, I was just talking to a friend who works in government (laughs) uh, yesterday, and his experience and his role inside government is decidedly undemocratic. He does not have any democratic say in terms of what he's working on or decisions that he's making. It's very top down. And most people's employment reality is also non-democratic. There's somebody at the top who gets to make decisions for the people below. And then there's this constant clamoring to get to the level where you get to make decisions over other people. So, And you're kind of, Sean, you're kind of talking a little bit about like governance and decision-making, but we actually, we kind of separate the two, right? So we have, we have another principle around kind of decision-making, but this one really speaks to kind of the ownership piece, right? So I mean, in this country, oh my goodness, we, (laughs) so few people actually own the products of their labor. So yes. And thanks for making that distinction. And so what does it mean if you have ownership of an organization? It can sometimes mean governance and, and, and we'll talk about that more, but oftentimes ownership is equated with getting a share of the profits or the benefit of the organization. And, you know, the way that I see it is that if, if you show up to a certain job or, or career and you're putting your life effort in there, maybe 2000 hours a year, if if you work that much, I think that's a lot to work, but, and then you do that for maybe 40 years or something. So you're putting 80,000 hours in, but you don't get any share of the ownership. You've created all that value, but you're not, you you know, you don't get to reap the rewards and share the profit. Again, that's not necessarily fair or democratic and it often is uh, extracted. So um, one, one example that we like to share is is actually the the largest worker-owned cooperative in in this country called Cooperative Home Care Associates. It's in the the Bronx in New York City, and they offer home health care nursing services to the community that, you know, again, certainly a basic need. But if, if you look across that industry, there's probably almost no nursing positions in this country that offer ownership as part of the the terms of employment. 
And the fact that this this organization is doing it and, and has been doing it for decades, they've even replicated. There's a, another company in Philadelphia that they spun off. And yeah, it's just one of the not only impactful for the healthcare industry, but uh, like I said, the largest we're growing cooperative in the country. I mean, it's really kind of leading this principle that you could you can actually run fairly large organization and have distributed ownership and share that benefit with the staff. What else would you add here, Aaron? Awesome. I mean, I I love this one, and I'm almost hesitant to use the word ownership because there's such so much of a connotation. It's it's so steeped in kind of, you know, colonization mindset of like, how is it even possible to own something? We're all so interdependent. We're all in this together. And, you know, there's so much that we need to move away from an ownership model. And really this sharing of ownership, I see it as a principle that can help us move away from the privatization and kind of siloization of ownership that is so at the heart of exploitation. We've seen that companies who really fully embody this shared ownership model have to practice giving away power, distributing resources, distributing wealth and power. And that really is fundamentally at the heart of it. And it's so exciting when we can actually step into that edge. Um, it's a it's an edgy space, but it's a very important space to really come back to the fundamentals of we're all in this economy together. And the more we can share and equitably meet each other's needs, um, the better for all of us. Very well said. I foreshadowed a little bit, Aaron, but maybe you can tell us what is principle number three. Yeah, well, I'll start off as we talk about how to democratize governance and decision making. Maybe I'll just start off with a case story to ground it because so many people think of when when I say nonprofit model, so many people think of a hierarchical structure where there's an executive director. And one of our favorite examples of democratizing governance is an organization called the Sustainable Economies Law Center that actually operates as a worker self-directed nonprofit. Worker self-directed nonprofit. So what that means is each worker in this nonprofit, which I think they're over 20 at this point, there's there, you know, it's pretty complex um, <laughs> navigation of different people and the owners of this nonprofit. Each worker in the nonprofit actually gets to direct and decide how they want to spend their own life force energy to support the mission of the entire organization, which is really to democratize and make more accessible legal tools to more communities and actually legalize things that are currently really challenging to do, but are really important for the future of humanity. So things like community composting or democratizing access to real estate and having laws around ownership of property that are more permissible to a sustainable future. So the Sustainable Economies Law Center does has a really beautiful mission. And the key thing is that there's no one executive director overseeing all the projects. It's really much more grassroots coming from the workers themselves. And they're negotiating in smaller circles and smaller groups, discussion groups and decision-making groups around what is most passionate to them to work on that they feel fulfills that mission, that overarching mission. 
So just zooming out from that kind of case story, there's a lot of different ways to democratize governance. There's a number of different, you can use consent, you can use consensus, modified consensus, majority decision-making, but it's definitely a next level principle to when we see organizations that are actually distilling and allowing decision-making to happen at every level of whether they're the makers of the product to the people who manage the financial systems. If everyone has a say, we see that as such an incredibly next economy practice. What would you add, Sean? Well, maybe I would ask, why is it important to be democratic? Like, what's the... What would be the benefit of having an organization that's run democratic? Because, you know, the, we're running counter to the idea of like, I'm the brilliant leader. I'm the yeah. one to be trusted yeah. with the decision making. Why, why would it be better to have other people contributing to that? A number of reasons. The first is that we actually believe that when I believe that when someone is exclusively focused on, say, financial management or exclusively focused on HR, they're not seeing the whole picture of how the organization has impact on the larger systems that we're nested within. And so for me, having more perspectives included in decision-making mitigates some of a lot of the exploitation that happens just by the very nature of the business as usual economy, whereby workers are so often exploited, their perspectives are marginalized, and it's so often that the kind of C-suite executives are making decisions mostly oriented around their charge, their purview, which is profit-making. So democratizing governance allows us to really lean into making sure everyone's needs are met. And then the other piece I would bring in is there is a lot of, I would say the biggest piece of feedback we get on this principle is the concern that including everyone's voice is going to take way, way, way too long. (laughs) And so we have developed a number of tools to mitigate that. And we actually believe that the process of including everyone's voice can be made much more efficient through the pattern of learning how we express input in a way that allows other people's voices to be heard, the way that we negotiate time and space and resources, and that that practice is actually a very necessary daily, weekly, monthly ritual and practice for us all to learn how do we coexist on a planet with finite resources. (laughs) So that would be why, for me, why it's important. I love that, Aaron, especially when you're looking at the big picture of how how do we actually all get along. And I would just raise this idea of like, democracy is a muscle or it's a practice, right? It's not just this ideal to valorize that once every two years or four years, you can cast a vote in a national election or something. But it's like, hey, team, I want to do this today. Here's my proposal. Let's talk about it. And then the idea that by actually going through a collective decision-making process, we're actually coming out with a more durable solution. Everybody's got their input. The, The proposal actually becomes refined and actually better. I'm so grateful to be, I've, I'm, you know, myself a worker owner for 25 years. I'm so grateful for my coworkers for talking me out of really bad proposals. <laughs> Whereas if I was the, you know, heroic leader, I would have probably crashed the business several times over by being overly principled or not considering all the impacts. And then by having a team that to push against me and being engaged in it rather than, you know, 
taking it personally and storming out of the room or something, but, oh, good point. Wow. Okay. And then it sounds like this is the middle of where we're all, you know, agreeing on and crafting a solution together is a skill that humanity needs right now, right? How do we build a future that works for everybody? I don't think we could do that without including people's voices. Important one. Absolutely. Well, ready for principle number four, Sean, the big reveal. (laughs) I am, you know, as we're going through this, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's redundant for me to say that I love them all, but yeah, they're each very near and dear to me. So principle number four supports local communities. Wow. So important. And, and again, as you know, as the listeners are are hearing all these, you you might be sensing that there's kind of a deep interconnection between these, right? So if you, if you have shared ownership and shared governance, Mm. (laughs) it's probably a better chance that it's going to support local communities. Actually, let me just jump right to the case story of Cooperation Jackson. Uh, You know, tragically in the news this week, as we record this, is the fact that there's no drinking water in Jackson, Mississippi. And as that news has come out and it's making national headlines, and of course, it's terrible news, but it's been a problem for years. It's not just a new problem. And it's not just the floods and the climate change, but, you know, historical systemic racism has left the infrastructure underdeveloped in this majority African-American city of Jackson, Mississippi. So to embody the principle of support local communities, Cooperation Jackson is a local cooperative network ecosystem. So it's not just one business, you know, where we talked about meeting basic needs. It's not just a food system, but they're also looking at production, manufacturing, they have farms. Can't actually remember all the exact uh, enterprises they have, but just the conception of a wide ranging cooperative that's meeting many needs and launching many enterprises as a network and open to the community with democratic input. You know, this is the type of pattern we need to see in every neighborhood, not just the severely disenfranchised neighborhoods like Jackson, Mississippi. That's a great example. And this is, you know, again, with the, the building on principles of, you know, shared ownership, shared governance and meeting, meeting basic needs, the, the organizations that are, you know, have that type of governance, they're going to be making decisions that support and enhance their local community rather than degrade their local community in contrast to a a large multinational with concentrated decision-making power where they might make a decision to pollute a certain river or a certain ecology. A small local organization like Cooperation Jackson, they're not going to pollute the Pearl River. They're going to be making decisions that enhance their ecosystem and build biodiversity and ecosystem health rather than degrading it. So, yeah, you could see how powerful this principle of making sure you design your business to support local communities can be. What would you add, Erin? I think I would just add the real, some of the tactical tools that we can use for supporting local communities can be things like banking locally. They can be things like starting um, alternative currencies or alternative exchanges that actually bring back the value to the local community rather than using sort of a monolithic you know, currency. Uh, time banking, barter exchange. There's a number of kind of very tactical, but diverse ways of 
ensuring that resources cycle back in the local community to ensure that the wealth of that community stays there. And those are things that we go deeper into, not just in our MBA course, but with clients and we're scheming some self-study materials as well. So, so just really encouraging people to think about this, both as with those kind of tactical tools in mind. It's such, it's so heartbreaking when we see mission aligned organizations that we love and hold really dear and they're banking with a large multinational bank that is literally doing the antithesis of what they're trying to do with their mission and vision, the bank might be disrupting the integrity of local ecosystems through their endeavors. So we've got to get the money out of (laughs) those banks and into more more life-affirming local circulation. Yeah. And just to build on that, likewise, like supply chain, you know, they might be, you know, it might be democratically run and they're doing a lot of good things. But then if they're if their supply chain is, you know, coming from Asia and the raw materials are coming from Africa and it's this global exploitative supply chain and they're trying to do good work in their own community. Not that they can't do good work in their community, but again, with the the principles, we're trying to kind of step back and look at the whole picture and see how much we can maximize benefit on any given organization. And so this is one of those, the principle is kind of a lens to think about, oh, okay, all of our endeavors, how does it support the local community? And can we move some of our resources more local? So Aaron, we're, we're on a roll here. Do you want to introduce us to principle number five? Absolutely. So principle number five, last in this podcast, but not least, and we'll we'll go into six through 10 afterwards in our next session together. This principle is really about organizations that integrate education. And one of the kind of ways I think about this principle in an easy, lighthearted way is how do I design my social enterprise to put myself out of business? ultimately. And spoiler alert, we have not yet seen any of our clients that have integrated this principle put themselves out of business. <laughs> so there's there's less of a risk right now because we need so many people jumping on board with this principle and actually building life-affirming social enterprises that meet basic needs and educate large masses of people about why these goods or services are essential for the flourishing of human life. So I'll give another example. It's actually uh, hearkening to the SELC, which I already introduced as embodying democratic governance. I want to bring them up again because their integration of education into what they do is such a fundamentally cool part of their organization. And I'll give an example. The SELC the Samuelkai's Law Center, they offer free legal cafes that you can go to online. And, you know, as anyone who's ever tried to hire a lawyer knows, this is a very, very expensive line item to try and, and get any sort of legal advice. And this nonprofit has this education embedded into the mission of what they do. They're educating both consumers and other lawyers, which I'll go into in a minute, they're educating consumers about how to even think about integrating with the legal institutions. And so these legal cafes offer people a free, affordable, donation-based way to access what do I need to consider when I'm wanting to start a small initiative? What sort of legal considerations should I be thinking about? 
Another way they integrate education into what they do is they've actually brought on several of their worker owners have become lawyers without going to law school. So they've become lawyers just through working with the Sustainable Economies Law Center, legalizing sustainability, legalizing these really important critical infrastructure. And then the Sustainable Economies Law Center also does these lawyer training programs. So they do like a radical real estate law course that they take other lawyers through. They have intern op- internship opportunities. And all of this really kind of coalesces into a philosophy that if the Selk kind of, if they only kept the value where people had to pay to access that intellectual knowledge about the legal space, that would limit the potency of their impact. It wouldn't be able to spread as quickly and as widely as it needs to, to really fix the problems that are entrenched in the legal system in the United States. And so this principle integrating education, we could, we could use just as easily for food systems where if a company can educate people about how to make their own nutrient dense food at home, and then maybe that person is spending less money at the grocery store buying that particular product. But maybe that person, now that they know how to make it themselves, they can educate their neighbors and make it for potlucks for their neighbors. And then their neighbors can go and buy food at the grocery store. But it's able to spread more in a biophilic way, more like biomimicry, where seeds, a little plant that grows and flowers and turns into a seed head, shares that DNA of that plant that seed very freely on windborne and reseeds itself in so many different places so that more life can flourish. And that's really what this principle is about. Mm. Anything to add, Sean? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. And again, just loving this principle of, so it's not just providing a solution, right? So again, we're, you know, if we're, if we're looking at basic needs and, you know, integrating some of the principles here, uh, so we're, we're providing something that, that people really need and that really benefits people. And then kind of offering some different maybe levels of engagement. So one is maybe we sell the product outright. Like you're saying, uh, maybe we have a community-supported kitchen and we're making meals, right? And so we're, we're doing the work. And we're providing meals and maybe you're really busy and you can't m- make your own food. So you could participate at that option. But then we also offer the workshops and teach you how to make them yourself, right? And so then you don't need to maybe come in and buy your own food, which might be expensive. Maybe you could stay on your homestead and make your own food and you make your own meals. So we're giving kind of, uh, there's levels of participation here. But the focus is really on, or the way, you know, the way I like to see it is like, we're trying to deploy a solution to benefit humanity. And we're not necessarily trying to privatize the solution. This, I feel like, is very poignant now in the age of COVID and privatized vaccine formulas, where you see that the, <laughs> the pharma companies, first of all, they're given public money to go develop, <laughs> go develop these vaccines. And then, of course, then they... You know, again, with lawyering up and make sure that they own every little shred of IP and nobody else can profit. And then you have to pay high amounts for those vaccines instead of just what they cost. You have to you have to support all the bonuses and, and everything that are going into that really lopsided pay scale of the, the so-called healthcare industry. Instead of let's just deploy the solutions, let's develop open vaccines. And I know there are open vaccines projects around the world. But what if that was the method of you know, solving a pandemic. Hey, global team of all medical scientists, let's crack the code and let's let's share all the vaccines and which ones are working best and let's give them to everybody who needs it. We wouldn't be having all these variants coming through. 
right? The COVID was the quickest, you know, vaccine that was developed for a pandemic in human history. Well, what if that was deployed to everybody in humanity? We would have just nipped it and we wouldn't have this three years of people getting sick and the variants getting stronger and all this stuff. So yeah, the focus again is like solving the problem, not privatizing the solution and maximizing profit. And then the other thing you mentioned was, you know, the goal is to put yourself out of business, but it doesn't necessarily mean like some, especially, uh, you know, some capitalists listening to this might be offended. Well, you ever put yourself out of business? Well, the idea is if you solve that problem, take that talented group of people and solve the next problem. It's not over. (laughs) We got a long way to go here. So if we can solve one problem, great. Let's deploy that solution. Make sure everybody that we're elevating that floor or that standard of living of humanity and let's solve the next problem. And what I like to think of is if we get some of these basic problems solved and we can maybe stop fighting and then we could spend our days, you know, singing love songs and creating art and poetry and and just enjoying the fecundity and beauty of life on planet earth. Not that we can't do that in the meantime. And that's very important, but, you know, not seeing like this kind of scarcity of like, Oh, if I, if I don't protect my IP, somebody's going to steal it and I'll lose something. It's like, give it away, especially if it's valuable. Come on. Like we need to share at this moment. So I like that this principle for me is, is rooted in, in generosity. And, you know, like you said at the beginning, collective liberation of, hey, we need to, we need to solve this problem for everybody. And if, if we're onto something good, more important for us to, to gift it. And just a, a reminder for self-care here as you're hearing these principles too, if any of this feels really, really scary or really, really far away, that's why we created this community. You know, join us, join our, listen to our podcast, join our MBA, connect with us, reach out, send us an email, listen to our, read our newsletter. We actually, I believe that so many of these principles take a lot of courage to take a leap into sharing you know, moving beyond the intellectual property, the IP mindset and moving into creative commons licensure and sharing knowledge and sharing openly and helping others learn these things. And it's going to take some time. It's going to, it's not going to happen overnight. And so we need each other to build up the courageousness and tenacity to embody these principles. And we need to see examples of other people doing that courage to be able to, to follow their leadership. So grab a hold and jump in and, <laughs> and have a lot of patience and self-care and self-compassion through the process. Oh, I love that, Aaron. Thanks for, for saying that. Very beautifully said. And I'll just add to it of just like, again, if you have a solution for a basic need, it's like giving love. You know, when you give love to somebody, it's not like you're out of love and then you only have hate left. No, when you're loving, you actually have more love. There's more and more love to give. So this is this is about, you know, sharing beauty. And the more we do that, the more we build relationships and the more we have strong communities that we can take care of and meet each other's needs. And the less we need things like fiat currency and, you know, jobs to take up our time. And then we can move to enjoyment and beauty and the art of living together. So sharing is the real renewable resource. <laughs> 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 mm, 
Well, thanks so much, Sean. And thanks to our listeners for being interested in, in hearing about these principles. And maybe we could offer an invitation if, if one of these principles, you want to take it upon yourselves to write about how you might be able to weave it more into your current endeavors, whether it be in your life or in your workplace or in a project that you're working on in your community neighborhood. We invite you to write about it and share it with others and try it on and give us feedback. Let us know how it turns out for you. Well, thanks so much, Erin. So that was our principles one through five. And so on our, you know, stay tuned. Our next episode, will go principles six through 10. And also just as an invitation, if this is interesting, this is kind of the short form. Uh, we did about 30 minutes here and what we would usually do 90 minutes in our facilitated training. Join our live training where you get to go through this content with a community and hear people's case stories and hear people's questions and, and crit- critique and challenges they've had trying to do these things. And then also our book will be coming out where we go deeper into all these subjects as well. So invitation, if it's interesting to, to get more, more involved. All right, everyone have a next economy day. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Next economy now is a production of lift economy to listen to all of our episodes go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.